0: we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and ask you to guide and lead us as we study, show us what you want us to see from all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Acts chapter 10. We left uh, Peter in Joppa in the last chapter where he was uh, working with a ministry and he was living with a man named Simon the Tanner. Uh, And this is where we start at in verse 10 chapter 10 verse 1 there was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius a centurion of the band called the Italian band a devout man and one that feared God with all his house which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always he saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming to him and saying Cornelius and he said Excuse me, I lost my. And he saw in a vision. He said, "Go, Cornelius." Verse four. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, "What is it, Lord?" And he said to him, "Your prayers and your alms have come to a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose name is Peter. He lodges with one Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. And he shall tell you what you ought to do." And when the angel of the Lord spoke to Cornelius was departed he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually and when they had declared all these things unto him he sent them to Joppa. So we're going to stop there. We're looking here Cornelius. He is a Gentile. He is not only a Gentile, he is a Roman officer. So this is going to be setting up a very interesting dilemma for Peter. Because Jews do not uh, interact with non-Jews. And they, at this point in the church, it is all Jewish believers that have turned to Jesus Christ. There are no Gentiles up until this point in time in the church. Now, people go, what about the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, we remember when we talked about him, he had come to celebrate Passover, which means that he was a Jew. Now, whether he was a proselyte or a born Jew, we don't know, but he was a Jew. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. So here we have Cornelius, who is apparently worshiping God, but he is not a Jew. So this is, this is a change for the church that's coming up. Uh, he was a centurion, which means that he was in charge of 80 men. It's kind of interesting that centurion means 100, but they only had 80 men in the, in the group for a centurion to be over. Uh, the centurion was in charge of 80 men or 10 groups of 8 men, which were their bands so he would have had 10 groups of eight that he was in charge of, or 80 men. He would have been part of what was called a cohort, which would be 480 men. So he is up there a little bit. He is, he is in charge of 80, and he's part of a group of 480. And then 10 cohorts made up a legion. And the legion had 5,000 men, and the way they figured that is that the first cohort would have... 600 men instead of 480 because they would have all the blacksmiths and the and the cooks and all the people that were specialists that could repair the 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 armory and build buildings and all of that so the first one had all kinds of specialists the rest of them just had soldiers so we see this is an important person he is not just a nobody he's in charge of 400 uh, excuse me 80 men and they're called the Italian band, and nobody really knows what that means. Most people speculate that it was a, a group of 80 that was strictly Italian uh, soldiers, no, no mixed company. And which, if that is true, then they were probably also a bodyguard uh, division that they would take to special assignments. All right, Rome often with their military pulled from all over the the Roman Empire and put them all together but they had certain divisions that were just Italian members that they knew that they could trust Uh, because they were always worried about the guys from Gaul and the the Franks and the, 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 the Brits, the Gauls and all that that they might turn on them. So they always had certain divisions that were completely Italian and they were the ones that would get the trusted positions. And so we don't know for sure, but that's what most people believe that this one is referring to, is that he had an all-group from Italy. And his description of Cornelius in chapter in verse 2 says that he was a devout man, and he feared God with all of his house. So he is he is trying to follow God. Now, he doesn't seem to know exactly who God is. Now, he's in the Middle East, so he's familiar with the Jews, most likely but he hasn't become a proselyte. He hasn't become a Jew. All right? He's trying to follow God. He's probably, because he is Roman, he's probably struggling with the whole idea of one God. And we don't really understand that because we don't live in a society that has more than one, one God generally. But for a Roman, this was a big deal. To go from lots of gods... <laughs> To one and only one is a pretty big deal. And yet he's going, there's something different. There's something different. I, I want to find the God. And uh, so he's devout. He's giving alms. He's, and it says his whole house is following him. So he is influencing his whole household. And this is one of the things that we're told you know, off and on throughout time. You, know, you can minister to children in the church and children are easy to convert but usually if you get a child you do not get the whole house you might get a brother or a sister if you're lucky you might you have an inroad to be able to get the parents maybe they'll tell you that if you get the mother you might get the might get the house but if you get the father you get the house and it's pretty much true if you can get the father committed to Christ and he starts coming The whole family's coming. Mostly because dad says they're coming. All right? But also the fact that the guys, the boys have trouble. Boys will follow mom to church up until they become teens. At which time, if dad's not coming to church, they get the attitude that church is for girls, church is for women. Men don't go to church. And the sad thing is that that seems to be true in America that men don't come to church. And it is really hard to get through to them that true men serve God and will follow God. And it's hard. Cornelius is leading his family. He doesn't seem to be knowing the God to follow at this moment, but he says, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to find this God. This is happening even in today's world. In many Muslim countries, there are people who are serving God and Jesus appears to them in a vision and says, go find the followers of the book. All right? True service to God is to God, no matter who, you, who, you think, who they think it is. And God will reveal himself to those individuals and say, this is where you're going to find the truth. Because it is rare for people to truly want to find him. And here's Cornelius, wanting to know the truth. And he is in prayer always. So he's, you know, he's doing what Paul said, that we're to always be in prayer. And in everything with thankfulness and thanksgiving, make your request be made to know, be known unto God. Uh, pray always, you know. And this doesn't mean we're on our knees 24-7. It just means we're in an attitude of prayer where we're presenting our needs to God and our request to God. And just as I said this, you know, this morning, when true worship is that I'm worshiping God 24-7. So I see a need, I pray. I have a need, I pray. I see something that I need to be thankful for, I'm, I'm praying and saying thank you. you know, I'm saying thank you for all these things. And this is Cornelius. He's, all, he's in that position. He's wanting to know God. And he saw a vision, and it says evidently in the uh, uh, King James, that it literally is plainly. It was not even a question in his mind. He saw a vision of a man or an angel before him. In the ninth hour, which means at three o'clock. So he's praying at three o'clock or three-ish. The ninth hour technically is everything between noon and three. Uh, But for a Jewish perspective, they prayed at the ninth hour at three o'clock. So he's probably praying at three and an angel comes to him. Now, I have not had an angel show up to me when I've been praying. Uh, Cornelius doesn't know, doesn't know God completely and he gets to see an angel while he's praying. Because he's probably praying something, God, I don't know who you are, but I, really, I want you, I want to know you type deal, and all of a sudden an angel shows up. And I'm not sure how I would respond if an angel did show up in my prayers. <laughs> uh, Because this is plainly, I mean, it is not, his vision is not something that he is questioning about. He knows that he is seeing something. All right. Uh, And then the angel said to him, Cornelius. (laughs) The beauty of this is something that kind of gets lost on us. God knows our name. You know, that really can be a difference maker for most people to know that God knows you. Knows you intimately enough to know your name. Now, you all know that I'm not the greatest person with names. It takes me a while to get to know names. But God knows our name and deals with each one of us individually. Just as he's doing with Cornelius. Cornelius. And he's going to show, he not only knows Cornelius' name, he knows Peter's name, and he knows where Pe- the name of the person Peter's staying with. And tells him all of this information, you know, as we get into this chapter. God is really wonderful in that he pays enough attention to know. Now, he knows all things, we know that. But, you know, this takes it down to a very personal level. This is not just that he knows all things, but Wow, he pays attention to all that he knows. He calls Cornelius by name and in verse 4, and he looked upon him and was afraid. Now this is an interesting statement when you think about this. This is a Roman officer of 80 men. And he, even in a startled state, would not normally be something that he's afraid of but he is showing fear. Yeah. And I can almost picture this he's he's praying, he's on his knees, whatever and the next thing you know somebody's in his room talking to him. And he wasn't announced by his servants, he, he wasn't announced by his his guard, you know, cuz he's an officer, he's going to have a, you know, somebody somebody even from the military, you know, underneath him that is keeping an eye on him. And all of a sudden while in the middle of prayer this this being says Cornelius and his answer is who are you Lord so Cornelius answer is what is it Lord you know what why are you basically why are you here <laughs> who, who are you why are you here and his answer is kind of an interesting thing he says your prayers and your alms are come up for a memorial before God God has heard your request This is why I've said, you know, if your service is really to God, even though you don't know who he is, he's going to take that for himself, because he knows that true worship has to be to him. We cannot worship anything but the true God in true worship, and this is important. Cornelius doesn't know who he's worshiping, but he says, I need to know God. (coughs) And the angel comes and says, you've been noticed. Memorial. We set up memorials to remember things. And he says, it has come up as a memorial before God. And God says, I've seen this. Now he gives them the instruction. Okay. God is not going to leave that person worshiping incorrectly. Even though they are worshiping him without knowing it, he's not going to leave them at that place. This is what I said. In Muslim world, many times Muslims are, there have been many Muslims that have been worshiping God, knowing that they want to worship the God, and God shows himself to them and says, you're not, follow, you're not quite doing it right. Go to this person or call for this person. This is what Cornelius is told. Call. And he says, now send men to Joppa, And call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. Now Joppa is approximately 30 miles south of Caesarea. On the coast of the Mediterranean. So this is is not a short trip. He's sending his servants 60 mile round trip to go find Simon Peter and bring him back. Two to three day trip expectation on this to go get these individuals. He's going, to send his pe- his, he's going to send some men about 30 miles south of where he is to get to Joppa. And he's on the coast highway so it should be a pretty straight shot. So we're looking at pretty much a 30 mile trip one way. And he's told send men to Joppa and call for Simon whose surname is Peter he lodges with one Simon the Tanner whose house is by the seaside and he shall tell you what you ought to do. Now these are some specific instructions. All right? You're going to go to Joppa. You're going to go find Simon the Tanner's house and he's by the seaside. Okay, You're not looking up in the mountains. You're not looking in the valleys. You're going to the seaside and you're looking for Simon Peter. Now this is some very, very specific instructions, and his men should have an easy time finding him with those instructions. They don't have to search all of Joppa. All they've got to go is down by the port area and find and find out where Simon the Tanner is. And because it's Simon the Tanner, that means he's got a business someplace. So he should be easy to find. You know, all of these' he's given, he's given some instructions that make him very easy to go find, the, find this person and very specific. And we're going to find out why it has to be so specific later, you know, as we get in, into this story. But he sent out there and when the angel was departed, he called his household servants and a devoted soldier that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, I found this very interesting, and one of the things when I looked at some of the commentary to see if anybody else thought about this, nobody commented on it. He declared to these servants all that happened to him, the vision and everything. He is an officer. Officers are used to saying, go, and the guys go. He is telling them everything that they need to know when they go meet Peter. I think he's expecting Peter to say, who are you and why should, I, why should I come? So he is telling them everything they need to know to be able to tell Peter why Cornelius wants him to come to him. He's fully expecting a Jew to say, there is no way I'm going to go to a centurion's house and talk to him. Remember, when Jesus was crucified... The Sanhedrin leaders and everything would not go into the courtyard of Pilate because it was Passover. They did not want to make themselves unclean for Passover. They actually made Pilate come out to them, or at least with messengers, come out to them. And this was the arrogancy that Rome was used to of the Jews. The Jews had surrendered to Rome so they were able to keep their Keep some of their rights as Jewish citizens, and they were not a conquered people per se. They had turned, they had voluntarily given up their rights, which mean which meant that they were being more difficult than most of the guys. If they had been conquered, they could have said uh, Pilate could have said, "No, you guys get in here," but because they had voluntarily given up, they were given rights as Jews to practice Judaism which is how Christianity grew as well as it did because it was under the umbrella of Judaism at first. It was a division of Judaism and was protected by that umbrella until about a century in and then it started being broken down when the Jews were saying, well, no, they're not really us anymore. And, but by that time, they'd been established in the Roman Empire as a valid religion and had protections. But at this point, they're under this, re, this uh, covering. Cornelius wants to talk to Peter, but can't just demand Peter to come to him. And the angel said, send men. If the angel hadn't told him to send men, I believe that Cornelius would have gone to see, gone to see Peter directly. But this was going to be the miracle of Gentiles being accepted by God. And Peter needed to see not just one, he needed to see lots of Gentiles get saved. And so he sends him out, and he tells, his, he tells these guys he's sending them, and goes, this was my vision, this is what I saw, this is, what you're, this is why you're going, this is what I was told to do. He tells them everything. And like I said, that just grabbed hold of me. An officer telling his people why they were doing what they were doing. Because remember, when Jesus healed the centurion's servant, Jesus marveled at him because he says, I'll go with you. And he goes, no, you don't have to go with me because I'm a man under authority. I tell, one, I tell them to do things, and they do it. That's the same thing Cornelius would have done. Normally, he would have just said, go get this guy and bring him, you know, tell him I want to see him. But here he's looking, this, is, this man here, number one, he's saying he's important. He's going to tell me about God. And I'm not just ordering him to come come, I'm going to give him the reason why to come. And this is something that's important for us. When we're talking to people, we're discussing about Jesus Christ, we need to be able to explain what we believe, why we believe, how come. We can't just order them, especially with our, even our family. We can't order our kids, our, our relatives to, to turn, turn to God. Now sometimes we wish we could, <laughs> It would make life a lot easier in some cases. But you know, it almost inevitably when somebody gets saved, the first thing they'll do, especially a young guy, a young person, they'll go to mom and dad and say, you're going to hell. You've got to turn to Jesus. And that really turns, that really makes mom and dad feel really good. Uh, And sometimes the kids, you know, are forced to come to church. And I have one opinion to say that my kids did get forced to come to church we went to church, they went to church. When my dad got saved, outside of myself, most of, the, most of my brothers and sisters were forced to go to church. I wanted to be in church. I got saved first. I wanted to be in church. They were kind of forced to go to church. And people will go, well that's not a good thing. You know, you know what, I'm gonna say it's a very good thing to make your kids go to church. Because they need to hear the truth. People will go, well, I just want them to make their own decisions. Well, if you want them to decide to go to hell, that's up to you. But I'm gonna, I want to scare the hell out of them and, and get them into Christ. And that means I'm going to drag them to church every time I can. Because I want them to hear the word of God. Because there's no way they're going to make the right choice if they don't come and hear it. And so we see this process. He's saying, I want to hear this truth. I want this man to come to me. Verse 9. On the morrow, or the next day, as they went on their journey and drew nigh to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready to eat, ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened up and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit, knit at the four corners and let down to earth. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air, and there came a voice unto him saying, "Rise, Peter, kill and eat." But Peter said, "Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spoke unto him a second time, "What God hath cleansed, that call not you uncommon. Thus this was done three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision that he had seen meant, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. All right. So now we have scene two of this play. (laughs) We have three individuals coming down from Caesarea to Joppa God is now preparing Peter and we have to understand how big a deal this is for Peter Peter in no way if it hadn't been for this vision there is no way that Peter was going to go to go see Cornelius that a Jew just did not do that and it says on the next, on the morrow or the next day, as they went on their journey in and I, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. This is about noon. So he's going up around noon to pray. But, but the ninth hour is 3 p.m. Uh-huh. And so the what hour is? Noon is the sixth hour. They start their day about six o'clock when the sun rised. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. And so the. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. The third hour would be about 9. The sixth hour is about 6. Uh, excuse me, noon. Get, get my own self confused here. Because they only counted the hours from daylight. Uh, at night, they would say it was the first, second, or third watch. And you would stay up for a certain period of time you know, on duty, and then your watch was over, and the next, next one would come on duty. So they divided up the days by hours during the daytime and watches by the, by the night. So, and they weren't real accurate because they didn't have watches telling them that it was exactly so many minutes after the, the hour. So they just kind of timed the hours because that's really all you cared about. Uh, your, your meetings were not, uh, we were, I would be very much in trouble back in those days being very punctual and wanting to start exactly on the hour, exactly on the minute we're supposed to start I would have I would be very out of place. <laughs> uh, I thought they started their day from evening. The Jews started their day uh-huh. at sunset. Okay. But from sunset to sunset were their days. Uh, but they counted their hours uh, from sunrise. Okay. And so from evening to evening, evening, to evening, to evening okay. which was different than all other people. Yeah. Everybody else went from dawn to dawn. But they followed Genesis 1-1, where, Jesus, where God said, and the evening and the day were the first day. The evening and the day was the second day. The evening and the day was the third day. God established the day from being sunset to sunset. And the Jews have always followed that. And they're the only people that, that I know of that have ever that have followed that, that process. Um, okay, so Peter's praying at noon. <laughs> And it says that he gets hungry. Kind of not surprising to get hungry when lunchtime is supposed to be around. But, and, but, but it says he got very hungry. And it says while they were making ready, they were, they were preparing lunch. Now this was in a day when you did not eat 30 seconds after, you know, a minute and a half after you decided to eat. It took, if you were deciding to eat at this point, it was going to take some time to Cook. Yeah, and everybody in this room is old enough, except for one, is old enough to know what it used to be like to cook, le- even cook leftovers. Yeah, even to cook a leftover, you put it in a pot, put it on the on the stove, and it was, you know, or in the oven, and it was thirty minutes to an hour before you ate. All right, and that wasn't even considering making a brand new, <laughs> brand new meal. All right, so he's waiting. And while he is waiting, he gets into a trance or a vision. And what he sees in this vision is, it says a vessel. Vessel could be a sheet, some kind of container. It describes it as a sheet. All right, It could even be a sail, which, you know, being a sailor and a fisherman, he could have been very familiar with a sail. A sail. And down it comes. It's tied at the four corners. Gets down to where he's at. And it's filled with with animals. All kinds of animals. Clean animals, unclean animals, animals. And the voice says, take, kill, and eat. Or rise, kill, and eat. Now, one of the things you've got to understand, the place where they killed the animals was the temple. You didn't just go out and kill your own animal unless you were out in the wilderness and really hungry and then you had to make sure you drained all the blood and and into the ground, into a hole in the ground, and buried that buried that blood and all that all the ritual that went with it. Peter is on a roof, and God is saying, "Take one of these animals." So even if they were all clean animals, they're common and not available for him to eat because he would have to be drained and all that stuff down down into on the ground and. And their blood drained out, and all of this. Because if you if you remember the story in in uh, First Samuel, where King Saul forbids his army to eat anything when they were chasing the the enemy, and that's when when, uh, when when they were chasing the Philistines, and and Jonathan ate a little bit of honey, and got energy. Well, when they finally got done and they started slaughtering the animals. They're statement where they're eating the blood. They were killing the animals and eating the food raw or at least not drained of the blood, which was against the rules for the Israelites. The Israelites had to slaughter the animal, drain all the blood, and that blood was to be drained in a such a way that the, the blood could then be buried. All right. So here Peter is on a roof being told to violate every... A dietary law that he knows of. And he's going, no way. <laughs> yeah. uh, now He's pretty bold. I mean, you know that you're talking to God at this point. And on the first time, I don't know. Was he just thinking, is this a test? Am I, am I being tested to see if I'm going to follow and be obedient? So I can almost understand no way on the first time. Then it was repeated a second time. And he says, "No way." And God says, "Don't call common and unclean what I have cleansed." He's setting Peter up for this next step of his next step that he's going through, and he, and he did it a third time. Now, I don't know. Maybe I can almost understand. I definitely understand the first time. Okay, this is a test. I'm not sure what's going on. Second time, uh, yeah, I have a little more trouble with him saying no. The third time, I kind of really know. What's wrong with Peter? Now, one thing we do know that's wrong with Peter is he's a very stubborn man. He's going to do things his way. All right? Uh, so, I almost, you know, you, it's, it's in his nature to have said it, you know, said no three times. Uh, God, I'm not sure why you're, why you're asking me to do this, but, you know, God, I have never violated your laws. Never, ever won't violate your laws. I don't, this can't be, you know, and almost, like in one sense, I can understand the scripture said don't do it, and he's saying, uh-uh, it's not you, because I have said this, if it, doesn't, if it contradicts scripture, it's not God. So in, Paul, in Peter's defense, I'm going to say he's looking at scripture and saying, I don't know who this is asking me to do this, but it just can't be because he's looking at uh, Leviticus 25, he's looking at Leviticus uh, 10 and saying, God, uh, we don't do this. You know, this is not what we're allowed to do. So he's being lined up for what God's going to ask him to do. And then it says in verse 17, and while Peter doubted in himself, now doubted is not really a good good word here. It is, he was perplexed and pondering. Uh, he was kind of, I like one of it. it it's at a loss of, at, at a loss of, uh, Uh, Perspective. He is looking at, all right, I am very sure that this was God talking to me, but God was telling me to do something that I'm not allowed to do, written in the Word, and I don't understand. Now, was the point of this that God wanted him to eat, or was he wanting him to understand what is common and not common? Because the Jews had gone through and God said I'm making you separate and he said dietary rules are why you're going to be is how you're really going to be separated. And the Sabbath is how you're going to be separated. How did they take it? They made themselves so separate that they did not deal with the Gentiles. They would not do business with a Gentile if they had a choice. They would not eat with a the Gentile. They would not talk to a Gentile. They did not like Gentiles. In the in the Jewish interpretation commentary of the scriptures, Gentiles were created to go to hell. That was their attitude. We are going to heaven. Everybody else was created so that they could fuel hell. Kind of a sad way to look at the rest of the world. Uh, especially when they were all related. When you, when you go back to Adam and Eve and Noah and his wife. You know, they're all related and, got, and they had this attitude that every single person that wasn't Jewish was created to feed the fires of hell. And they had that attitude. They were not going to deal with a Gentile more than they had to. Now they might do business with them if they had to. But they weren't going to spend a lot of time talking with them. You get the impression of this. Remember when Ruth returns with Naomi into Bethlehem? She was rejected because she was not a Jew. Even though she said, your God will be my God, your people will be my people, where you go I will die. As far as they were concerned, she had not become a Jew at that point in time. As far as God was concerned, she had already converted. But they rejected her it was not uncommon to be rejected by the Jewish people until you could prove. This is why proselytes, uh, if you don't know what the word means, those who converted to Judaism, they were never truly accepted in their first generation even though they chose to follow God and follow the, the Jewish ways. They were always looked down on, especially in that first generation. You, you guys aren't, aren't one of us you're not one of us how can why 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 are you here why are you worshipping why are you doing these things cuz you weren't born as a child of abraham isaac and jacob so we see here this whole process and it says peter was shaken up by this he was he was pondering he didn't and this is how many times has god told you something and you don't fully understand it you know It happens all the time. God, I just, I'm not quite sure. I don't really understand. God, you're telling me something. And I don't understand what it is you're telling me. And while he was doing it, the men that were sent from Cornelius were making inquiry and stood before the gate. God had timed this perfectly. They're at the gate just at the time that the final uh, part of the vision has, has been accomplished. And... They were out there saying, "Is Peter here?" Now we found we found Simon the Tanner's house. We we found we found Joppa. <laughs> we found Simon the Tanner's house. Is there a Peter named you know, a, a Simon named Peter here? Because they're also in the kind of well. We're told to go here, and they, you know, may, we don't we don't quite know what Cornelius was drinking out there when he was. Uh, was there, but he took, gave us very specific instructions. You know, we're going to go to this house, and you can almost picture their question: uh, Is there a Peter? Is there a Simon Peter here? They're probably not really expecting it. They're just following orders. They were told to do it. They're following orders. They're going. We don't understand this. He's he sent us 30 miles to go find this guy. And they show up. Verse 19. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek you. Arise thereof and get you down and go with them, doubting nothing for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent to him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause thereof you are come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a just man and one that fears God and is and of good report among all the nation of the Jews has warned, was warned by God by a holy angel to, to send for you into his house and to hear words of you. Then called he them in and lodged them and on the morrow Peter went away with them and, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. All right. He's in there trying to figure out what's going on. As we would be. You know, and again, I, in many ways I understand. You know, he is being told to do something that is against the, the written word of God and he doesn't understand, or at least as he understands it, it's against the written word of God. And he doesn't understand it and he says he's thinking on it, he's deliberating, he's pondering on this. And these three men come to the door. He's on the roof, they're at the door. And the spirit... Says, Behold, three men seek you. All right? So God tells Peter, there's three guys down at the, bottom, at the door looking for you. And he says to him, Arise therefore, go, get you down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So he is told, three men are downstairs, go down and see them, and you're to go with them. He has no idea where he's going. He has no idea where he's being sent at this at this point of going down to them. Uh, you know, he's probably thinking, "Okay, I'm, I'm going to be going across town, across town, and I'll be back. I'll be back tonight before sunset." You know, because uh, there's guys at the door. They must be from this town. Uh, For I have sent them. Verse 21. And Peter went down to the men which were sent from Cornelius and said, "Behold, I am." He whom you seek, what is the cause wherein you are come? Now, this is something interesting because these guys are used to being called. All right? Everywhere they go, they're preaching, people are getting healed, demons are being cast out. They are used to people coming and seeking after them for help and for teaching and for healing people. And again, I had this feeling, it doesn't tell us this, but I had this feeling Peter's just thinking, you know, well, I'm going across town. Uh, you know, these guys, want, these guys want to have a, a message tonight, and I'm, I, I'm going to pre- preach a message. And they told him that they were from Cornelius, and they said he's a just man that fears God. And then they said one more thing. He has a good report or testimony among the nation of the Jews. So Cornelius was one who was looking. He hadn't become a Jew, but he was looking and had a good reputation. People knew that he treated them kind, that he was seeking after God. He gave alms. Remember, we said he gave lots of alms. You know, he was always helping people. And he says, And he was warned by God, by a holy angel, to send for you to come uh, into his, to come into his house to hear words of you. Alright? This is a man seeking after God. He's got a good report. I mean, this, is, this is key to them. They're going to Peter. You know, all the other Jews, all the Jews in our area think he's a good guy. Alright? He's not, he's not out to abuse Jews. He's, he's not out to defile your God. He's got a good testimony. And that is all for Peter's sake. You know, Trying to get, his, trying to get on his good side. And it says, God sent an angel saying, Send for you so that he could hear words. Now, at this point, I'm not sure whether Peter knows that he's not going into Joppa. Because you would know in your area, you'd know the centurions in your area. They've identified Cornelius as a centurion. And I can picture Peter going, Cornelius, Cornelius, which which centurion is he? All right. and kind of running through his brain and going, there's no Cornelius in Joppa. Uh, where God, where am I going? <laughs> and this is something that's important for us to be able to understand is that God gives us just enough information to step out in obedience. Always. He doesn't give us the whole story. He doesn't give us the whole destination. When Philip was sent out to go talk to the Ethiopian uh, eunuch he was just sent to the desert road then he met the Ethiopian and then when he was done with that God just took him away from the Ethiopian and, and sent him 70 miles uh, north just took him because it says he found himself <laughs> uh, now I again that's one of those things I've never had God just pick me up and move me either uh, you know, there were things that happened to people in the Bible that it's like, God, you know, it's interesting to see how he works. And when he heard this and he took what He had been shown, it said, he called them in and lodged with them. Now, we just read that statement and it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But this is a big deal. A Jewish man, bringing in probably Gentiles, because at least one of these soldiers is definitely a Gentile because he's part of the Italian band, so he's not—he is not definitely not a Jew. The servants may or may not have been, and I don't think they were. So Peter is bringing three non-Jewish people—at least one, but probably three non-Jewish people—into his house for the night. That would not happen. And it would not have happened if Peter had not seen this vision. All right. Uh, and I'm sure that he spends time talking to them about Cornelius before he goes up there. Gets the whole vision from him. Finds out some of what, what he's doing. Uh, and it says, on the morrow, Peter went away with them. And certain of the brethren of Joppa accompanied him. All right. So brethren, Jewish Christians from Joppa go with Peter. Now part of this was probably to see what Peter was going to do. Peter had already violated their their way of life by inviting these Gentiles into the house and lodging them overnight. Now he's getting ready to go talk to a Gentile leader. We look at this, and it's kind of an interesting process that we look at because there's this problem that's going to happen in the early church about did God really want Gentiles in the church? Then we're going to find out later on, once we started getting Gentiles in the church, there's what do we make them do? Do they have to become Jews to become Christians? Now in our day, that's not even a thought process, but you know, in their day, that was a big deal. Everybody in the church up to this point in time were Jews. After this point, we're going to have Peter preaching to the Gentiles, and then we're going to have Paul preaching to the Gentiles all over the place, and there's going to be Gentiles all over the Roman Empire becoming Christians. And we're going to see that there is a pretty big deal going on. And then they have to decide, what happens? What do we we make these guys do? And we're already seeing it. Peter's getting ready to go see Cornelius, and immediately Jewish Christians go up with him. All right, Peter, what are you going to do? Uh, How are you going to behave? You've already violated the rules. You brought Gentiles into your house. And because it was so early in the day, it's noon, that means he had a meal with them that evening. Uh, and they're going, okay, you're breaking all the rules, Peter. And God had already shown him these rules that he was going to break. You're going to not call common what I have called, what I have cleansed. And this is the beauty. When God gives us instructions, it does not matter what the traditions of man are. All right? And this gets to be very interesting. We cannot be doing things because tradition says do it. And that doesn't matter whether it is a Christian tradition, uh, another tradition, family tradition, historical tradition, you know, Uh, nationality tradition, if God is saying do it and it does not violate scripture, we go out and do it. And Peter is having to deal with this and we don't really understand how big a deal this is for Peter. This is why that vision before they came to the door was so important. You know, God had sent them. He was being called to go talk to a Gentile. Not only a Gentile, an officer Gentile. It was, it was, it was you know, quite, a, quite a thing to be done. And at this point, the church is not recognizing that God wants everybody. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. Jesus ministered to Gentiles. Even though he was called to the Jews, on several occasions he ministered to Gentiles in Matthew 8 he healed the demoniac from Gadarean which was not a Jewish town in John 4 he went to the Samarian and, and talked to the Samaritan woman at the well in, in Samaria and she was quasi she was half-breed uh, somebody that wasn't supposed to be ministered to in Matthew 15 he we had the picture of the Canaanite woman who wanted her daughter healed and Jesus went so far as to say, well, you know, uh, I'm called to the Jews first. You know, uh, why, should I, why should I give the food that belongs to the Jews to dogs? You know, and she didn't even react to that. She goes, well, even the dogs get the crumbs from the tables. <laughs> you know, uh, and he heals her daughter. Uh, Matthew 8, the centurion calls to him and says, you know what, my servant needs to be healed. In John 12, there was a Greek contingent that wanted to talk to Jesus. So over and over again, Jesus set the pattern for the disciples that all people were going to be ministered to. Now, he didn't actively pursue them. These are all people that sought him. The, The apostles, though, are going to be sent to the world. And this is the first step. God has to break down their prejudice against Gentiles. And sometimes God has to do that with us, break down our prejudice against whatever. And it is really interesting because in our world, there is so much that goes on in the name of Um, prejudice. And so many things that happened. And we need to realize that racism should not be part of the church. Adam and Eve are the father and mother of all human beings. So is Noah and Mrs. Noah, who we don't have her name, but, you know, you know, we don't know her name, but we're part of their family. They are all part of that family. There should be no division based on race. Now, when God says that there's a division, he'll say there's a division between Christians and non-Christians. But not so much that we have to say totally separate them, but there is an important division there. We are to fellowship and have close, intimate relations with Christians. We can have friends within the world, but they should not be our best friends. They should not be our ones that we hang out with all the time and heaven forbid that you get your advice from the non-Christian. Our advice needs to be biblical. Our advice needs to be godly. And we can't even get godly advice from all Christians, but at least you stand a better chance if they're a Christian to start out with the right attitude. We need to be able to be seeking God, listening to Him. And, you know, prejudice runs all kinds of different directions from skin color to nationality to even whether they're wealthy or not wealthy. There's all kinds of prejudice that we have to be aware of. And avoid as Christians. James said, you know, you guys will treat the wealthy if you treat the wealthy and say, come have this good seed, and you take the poor person and say, come sit by my feet back here, you are wrong. We need to keep in mind that God loves everybody. You know, and this is very important for us that we don't start segregating everybody out and, and dividing people by anything. Because God does not see our skin color. He does not see our wealth. He does not see anything about us except one thing. What did we do with Jesus? What did we do with his son is the big deal for God. We need to understand that when we're dealing with people. The question is, what are they going to do with Jesus and be able to treat them accordingly? Because we're called to minister to those who can do nothing back. You know, we're told in the scriptures, you know, what good it is—is is it if you treat the person who can pay you back, well, yeah. Well, come on over to dinner because I know I'm going to get invited by you back to dinner sometime. So, and God, and even Jesus said, ask the person, invite the person who cannot pay you back. And this is important for us. Who are we dealing with? How are we dealing with people? Because everybody needs Jesus. Everybody, no matter how good they think they are how bad they think they are, no matter how rich they are how poor they are, no matter what skin color they have, no matter what even religion they're following to start with, they need Jesus. And we need to be able to reach out and say, this is Jesus. He loves you. And I've said over and over again, one of the greatest things we can say when we're witnessing to somebody, God loves you. Jesus loves you. Because most people are looking for true love. They're going to react. They're going to say, no, well, there's no way God can love me. You know, they'll, but if they're at the right place in the right time, God loving them is what they want to know. They want to know that God loves them, that there's hope. Because if God's not on your side, even the lost world knows if God's not on your side, you have no hope. So our message is God loves you in a, in a polytheistic world that they were existing in the message that God loves you and died for you was quite a message. there is no religion out there where God where their God pays the debt outside of Christianity. People will go, well all religions are the same well outside of Christianity all religions are pretty much the same they all based on Can you earn your salvation with a God that hates you and is looking to cast you into hell? Christianity is different because Jesus came to this world in the flesh, lived a perfect life, and died for our sin. So we know that we can go to heaven because Jesus paid the price. Without Jesus, there's no way we would know that we could go to heaven. And this is the problem with all religions out there. All the cults that don't trust in Jesus have the same problem. They're trying to earn their way to God. Religions are trying to earn their way to God. And it's a depressing life to have to earn your way to God because you never know whether you've done enough good. Because none of them tell you how much is enough. Now God tells us that it's perfection. He goes, well, you're not perfect. You didn't earn your way to heaven. This is why when people go, well, I never know if I've done enough good to go to heaven. I'm going, I can answer that for you real quick. They go, what? The answer is no. Well, you, you don't know. what I, It doesn't matter. God's standard is perfection. One mark against you means that you haven't done enough to earn heaven. You need Jesus Christ. This is why Christianity is different. It's a relationship with the God of the universe who who paid our debt and then brings us into a family. His family. And the beauty of this is when God brings us into a family, the only thing that's seen is Jesus Christ. We should not see skin color, wealth, nationality, anything after that point in time. We see Jesus. And we minister to each other that way. And we're going to leave here. We're going to leave Peter with his going to see Cornelius. (laughs) Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and care. Lord, help us that are listening to get beyond any prejudices that we might have and, and to seek after you and to minister to people according to the way you see them. And help us always to follow you in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow Him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at com or even pastor at com, or you can just send us a regular letter at chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.